0: Most of my life, I believe there were two types of people: those who believed God and those who rejected Him. But i found there's a third and very dangerous way to live, and it's being religious. It's saying on one hand that you believe that everything depends on the work of Christ, yet living as if everything depended upon you. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Man, that bad, huh? I mean, it's Palm Sunday. Wave your palm branches, right? You're like, what are you talking about? There's some palm branches back there. Don't take them, but if you want to borrow them for a minute, you totally can. Not right now, but maybe later. So uh, this time, um, over 2,000 years ago, we recognized Palm Sunday to be the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, and he spent his final week of his life before he was crucified. And uh, while the message isn't geared towards Palm Sunday this morning, I just wanted to bring that to your attention. Um, there are some sheets back on the table back there that basically give you an outline of, of all that happened um, in history during uh, Holy Week. Um, and so I would encourage you to grab one of those. And as, as you go throughout this week, uh, maybe you'll look at those passages each day and kind of journey through um, the, the adventure that Jesus went on leading up to his, uh, his death. Um, and so f- this Friday night we'll, uh, we'll gather in this same room uh, for our Good Friday service and we'll contemplate the cross and the work of, work of Christ and his crucifixion. Um, and it will be a, a dark night in a sense, um, but then we'll come back next Sunday and we'll celebrate uh, a risen Lord. Um, if you have a Bible you want to turn to Luke, um, we'll be in Luke uh, chapter 18 as well as chapter 15. Um, I want to tell you about a book that wrecked me. Um, so if you want to read something that's going to ruin you, this is a good one. Some of you have read—how many of you have read this book, Prodigal God? Um, unbelievable book, uh, Tim Keller. Uh, basically, if you want to get to the heart of what we're talking about this morning, uh, if you want to dive deeper into what the gospel in life, the uh, session two is about, the heart, you need to read this book. Um, incredible book, absolutely ruined my life a couple years ago. Um, and some of you as well. Um, well, last week we, uh, we talked about the city. Um, this idea from 1 Corinthians 5 that we're ministers of reconciliation. So um, how do we live in the place which God has us the job, um, whether we're a stay-at-home mom or Where we work out. How do we live in those places and that we're not just here to just consume and enjoy, but God has us in the places He has us to be ministers of reconciliation. Okay? Now, it's very possible that that you could seek to do that and not understand the gospel. Now, just a quick tip. In order to be an effective minister of reconciliation, it helps if you're saved. Okay, it just, just kind of i I'll just throw that out there. You can think on that if you disagree. We can talk about that later. But in order to be an effective minister of the gospel, it helps that you understand the gospel. And so we're going to dive deep into that this morning. But last week we talked about three, three ways to view the place in which you live. So I want to review on this, and then we're going to take this another step further. Um, we talked about the religious view. And the religious view is this idea that um, I, I don't engage the people around me uh, in order that I might keep my identity. Because if I engage the people around me, there's, there's a tendency where I could lose my spiritual identity because the, you know, the pagan culture, the, the wicked sinners, like, i got to stay away from that. The, the other view we talked about, the second one is, is the irreligious or the conformist view. And it's the idea that I begin to engage the city around me, and in doing so, what happens? I become like the pagan culture. But the gospel brings a third view to light that says that it's possible to engage a lost and dying world all the while I maintain my spiritual identity. And so what happens is you begin to serve the city out of your distinctiveness. Because the world doesn't need more of the same. The world needs something very different. Now, let's take these three perspectives and let's hone in on them a little bit and, and see how they relate to the heart. Okay, so really we have three views of, of life here. The first one, religious. Here's what it does. It makes law and moral obedience a means of salvation. So really, you're God. Your, your work in seeking to be good and do good says you can earn your own salvation. That's what religion is. Irreligion makes the individual a law to him or herself. So here's what you're doing. You're saying, I know what's right. I know what to do. I can make my own decisions. I don't need God. I'm God. So we're going to notice real quickly that oftentimes we think that irreligion and religion are two totally different things. They're really very similar. Very similar. In the final view, the gospel takes the law of God so seriously that Jesus paid the penalty of disobedience so we can be saved by sheer grace. Now, some of you are sitting here right now and you're like, yeah, we talk about the gospel a lot in our Church. I get it. I get the gospel. But here's, here's the danger. You can be gospel-centered and seek to live a gospel-centered life, but every single one of us has a tendency To lean one way or the other. Every single one of us in our gospel-centeredness has a tendency that if we're not careful, we'll run to religion or we'll run to irreligion. We'll run to moral conformity or we'll run to self-discovery. And the Lord's going to call us back time and time and time again. So I want to look at these views and I want to see how the Scripture defines them and then give some criteria to help us know where we're at with them. Okay, so um, let's go to Luke uh, 18. Luke 18. Uh, We're going to start at verse 9. Jesus is teaching a parable here. Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with with contempt. So he's talking to who? Ready? Who's Jesus talking to here? Pharisees. Okay, it says that he, he, he's teaching, he's talking to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, that they're good. They're like, you know, look at me, to the point where everybody else they viewed with contempt. You're no good, you're not as good as me. Now listen to what he does, how he breaks this down. Two men went into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus... Listen to this. So this is the Pharisee. This is the religious view. Listen to how he prays. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. You ever done that? God, thank you that I'm not like him. And thank you that I'm not like her. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So he's right there praying to God. And he's like worshiping God. And in his worship, he's like, God, I thank you I'm not like that guy right there. Because he's wicked. I can't even believe he's in this place. He's kind of like, you know, look at me, like, beating his chest. Like, you, know, you see, like, basketball players. Like, we had a basketball player um, a while back. He'd make a good play. You know, do like, one of these numbers. Like, look at me. Like, that's, that's what he's doing. It can be hard on your chest, so be careful if you try that. Now, listen to what he says. Verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes to everything. Like, I tithe on my tax return on stuff I actually already tithed on. Like, I didn't think of that. Do I got to do that? But, 13, the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. Okay, this isn't like this. Look at me. This is a sign of mourning, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, the tax collector at heart is a picture of irreligion. Okay? But in this passage, you see the tax collector coming to the gospel. So the Pharisee is a picture of religion. The tax collector is a picture in this passage of the gospel. Now... Go to chapter 15, Luke 15. Let's get another glimpse of these. Now this is a familiar text, and so stay with me. Um, I'm going to outline it maybe a little different than you've seen done before, uh, maybe not, um, Here's what I want to do. I'm going to start in, in verse 11 on uh, the story of the prodigal son. In verse 11 through 16, you're going to see the ir- an irreligious life. You're going to see the younger brother who says, I know what to do. I got this. I just need, you know, father hook me up. Like, I can take care of myself. I'm going to go discover the world. Okay, look at Luke 15, verse 11. And he said, Jesus is talking. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. You know what's interesting about this word property? Okay, it literally is translated bios, which means life. So here's what's happening is the younger brother is going to his father and he's saying, Father, shatter your life for me. Divide your life for me so that I can go and live mine. And if that resonates with you, that's ultimately the picture of what Jesus did. He gave up his life. The father divided the property between them in 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So he just began to live up the dream, to go out and just, just live the life that he always wanted to live. He had all the money he wanted from his father, and he just went out and he just lived it up. 14, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Okay, and that's a picture of, of irreligion. Okay, now let's, let's see what it looks like To turn to the gospel, to a gospel life that comes through repentance. This is verse 17. I want you to notice how your religion turns to gospel-centeredness. Verse 17. This is very key, the very first part. But when he came to himself, like it hit him. I think it was the work of the Spirit. It hit him. He said, How many of my my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose. And he came to his father. You You ever do this type of thing? Um, you ever play out in your head how you think a conversation is going to go? Doesn't it always go better in your head? You're like, oh, they'll, they'll you know, you can picture the, picture the younger brother here. He's, he's thinking through this, and he's like, I'll go to my father, and here's what I'll say, and here's kind of how I'll say it. And he's like, you know, I don't know if he's like talking to the pig there, like, you know, acting like it's his father, um, possibly. Um, but he's playing out the conversation, and then he's like, okay, All right, I'm going to actually go and I'm going to do this now. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he is still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Do you you think that played out in his mind when he was running through the script of how it would go? you you think he thought the father would, would, from a long distance off, run and pursue him? I doubt it. What a picture of a pursuing redeemer. He kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And I think the father at that point just cut him off. Just stopped him. He said said to his servants, Wait, bring quickly the best robe. And put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For the son was dead and is alive, and he was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Okay, this is a picture of a transformed heart. Okay, I've heard stories of what it was like in the hospital when, when they heard there was a heart for Megan. I've heard stories of the celebration. I believe there's a celebration that's going to take place soon to celebrate the one year. The father, he's like, let's celebrate. This this son's heart has been transformed by the gospel. Now, the one we always thought was so good, the older brother, the picture of the religious life, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing I don't know how you hear dancing. Not sure. Maybe you could fill me in later. Anyway. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother's come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. The brother was not happy, verse 28. And he was angry. And he refused to go, and he's like, I'm not joining that party. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered, Look, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your commands, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came home, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me. Listen to the invitation here. Even in the midst of the brutality of the older brother, the invitation, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. He's calling him back. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, oftentimes we we think of two ways to view relating to God. We think of the way that I can um, follow him and do his will. Or I can reject him and do my own thing. But really there's a third way. And it comes through another way that we can actually reject God. The first one is the common one. By rejecting God's law and living as you see fit. That's why we, we hammer on the younger brother so often in this parable. We hammer on him because he's like, oh, he's living the life. Disregarding God. Disregarding God. Rejecting God. But look at this other way. To reject God by obeying God's law. Yeah, by obeying God's law and being really righteous and really moral as self salvation. So the older brother was like, I've always done this, Dad. I and mean, look at me. Yet he's rejecting his father. He wouldn't even go in. Now, this is going to redefine sin for us. Look at this redefinition of sin. So sin then becomes not just the breaking of rules. Sometimes we think sin is, I man, I didn't do that. I broke that. I wasn't supposed to do that. But it takes it a step further. It's putting yourself in the place of God as your Savior and Lord. It's seeking to live so right, so upright... I tithe on everything. As if, put yourself on a pedestal. Say, God, look at me. Look at what I'm doing for you. Look at this ministry I started. Look at this conversation I just had with this person. Here's another way to look at these three perspectives. The religious view. The Pharisee. In Luke eighteen, the younger brother in Luke 15, here's their perspective. Here's what's going through their head. The good people, like us, they're in. The bad people, they're the real problem with the world. They're out. They're wicked, sinful. Can't believe they participate in the lifestyles they participate in. If they just get their act together, but we're we're in, we're good, we're righteous. We go to church, we don't drink, we don't cuss, we do what's right, or whatever other moral conformity you could put on there, that your religious view would be what? Tax collector and younger brother? The open-minded and tolerant people are in. The bigoted and narrow-minded people who are the real problem with the world? The holy rollers, they're the problem with the world. They just need to become like us. But the gospel calls us to something entirely different. Listen to this quote by Tim Keller. The gospel is not religion or irreligion. Morality or immorality, moralism or relativism, conservatism or liberalism. Nor is it halfway along a spectrum between two poles. It is something altogether different. You know what I want to do in my head so often? Is I want to say, you have morality and, and religion over here, and you have irreligion over here, and you don't want to run over there, you don't want to run over here, so we just gotta find this place in the middle so we avoid these two extremes. Keller said, it's scrap all of that. It's totally different and here's what it is everyone is wrong everyone loved and everyone is called to recognize this and change here's how jesus put it in eighteen fourteen: the humble are in and the proud are out james 4 6 god opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble Catholic thinker, G.K. Chesterton, a guy who he died in 1936, uh, he found an article in a newspaper, and there was a simple question in the article. It said this, what is wrong with the world? How would you answer that? How would you answer that question? Well, the government, if the government was better, our world would be back together. Oh, my spouse. There, what's wrong with the world? My, ki- my kids. Those darn kids. If they could just figure it out. Well, what's, what's the problem with the world? And here's what happened. He, this, this guy writes a letter to the newspaper, and here's what the letter says. Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. So, everybody, look at the person next to you and say, I'm the problem with the world. Go ahead. Listen. Some of you are like, that was really hard to do. That was awkward. That was weird. We've never done stuff like that before. Listen, though, this is what the gospel says. It keeps us from looking outward at all these people out here that need to be different and live different, and it it turns it on us. It says, Here's the problem. Megan's doctors honed in and they knew, Here's the problem. We need a new heart. If we don't get a new heart, it's done. So it didn't matter if this person over here got a new heart and this person over here got a new heart. If Megan didn't get a new heart, she was done. It's the truth of the matter is that we're more sinful than we ever thought possible, yet more loved and accepted in the cross of Christ than we ever dared believe. Now, Here's the question you're asking. So so how do I know where I'm at? How do I know if the gospel's actually penetrated my heart? If my heart has been transformed? Which, by the way, isn't a one-time act. Justification happens in a single moment, but the life of sanctification and and being brought back to the gospel is a moment-by-moment activity. So how do I know? Let me give you some characteristics. I'm going to draw right back to the passages we looked at. Characteristics of a religious pursuit of moral conformity. So what does it look like to be religious? Well, let's look at the the illustrations we have for us. Boasting in self. How'd the Pharisee do it? I fast twice a week. I tithe on everything. Look at me. Now, oftentimes we're not that forward with it. Sometimes we are, but, but we're a little more discreet with the look at me. Right? Or the older brother in 1529, many years I served you and you never, and never disobeyed your commands. You ever get mad at somebody for not noticing something you did for them? That's what's happening here. They're, they're wanting the Father's blessing. They're wanting the hand of the Father, but they're, they're, they're not wanting the Father himself. So what they do in this view, and what we often do is we, we use our morality as leverage against God. We say, for all these years I've been serving you, and you've never done this for me. Or I've been praying for this, I've been on my knees. You've never done this for me. Leveraging God. The creator of the universe, the one who spoke and it came into being. We're trying to push him around with what the Bible says is filthy rags. Here's the second thing critical of others. The Pharisee in 1811 I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Do you have a critical spirit? Just, I just ask you that question and just ask you to sit before the Lord with that. Do you have a critical spirit? And may, may, maybe you're really good at keeping it here. But do, do you have a critical spirit? The older brother in 1530 says, "This son of yours has devoured your property with prostitutes." It's critical. He can't get it right. If he would just get it right, we'd be all right. It's a dangerous way to live. And we have to continually confess that. I'm critical. I've been critical of you. I need to repent of that. And the third one, rejecting anything you didn't earn. The older brother 1528, but he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. The father said, Come in and join me. No. No, I didn't earn it. This isn't for me. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Like, what an invitation! You have everything at your disposal. No. Okay, characteristics of irreligion. The pursuit of self-discovery. I want you to notice how similar this is. Okay, I'm not going to run to the other side of the extreme. Very similar thing happening here. Number one, boasting in self. What would the son do? What would the younger brother do? Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. He's like, Dad, will you just die? That would be good. We wouldn't even have to have this conversation. He's, oh, g- give me, what, what's coming to me? Boasting in self. The second one, on, on the one hand you had where they're critical of others. On this hand you have where they, they disregard others. The younger brother in chapter 15, verse 13 The younger son gathered all he had and he took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. He didn't care what people thought. He didn't care what his father thought. Reckless life. Disregarding others. There's no desire to live for the pleasure of his father. There's no desire to take what his father had worked so long for and gone and used it in a way that might have honored his father, but he disregarded his father. They also, we also tended in this area to abuse anything you didn't earn. You you abuse it. Did the younger brother earn this? No, but he, he's like, I'll take it. Yeah, you're gonna get. Yeah, I'll take it. Just squander it. Just abuse it. So what does this look like in the gospel? You need to get this. I I need to get this. So uh, I'm going to wrap up with this, but don't don't check out yet because this is huge. Okay, what does this look like in the gospel, to live a gospel life that's in pursuit of Jesus? One word. Repentance. Mark chapter 1 verse 15 said, The kingdom of God is at hand. So this is here and now. This isn't for tomorrow. This isn't for down the road. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent of your morality. Repent of your immorality. And believe in the gospel. The work of Christ alone as your identity and sufficiency and hope. How does that look? Here's how it looks. Number one, honesty about personal brokenness. We're so good at looking around. We're so good at seeing the brokenness in others. And before we do that, God wants to say, you have to see the brokenness in you. But you're never going to get it. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. A sign of mourning. Saying, God, be merciful to me, sinner. What's the tax collector saying? I'm the problem. If I could just get my act together. The problem is, is we can't can't get our act together. Only God can transform us. We need a new heart. The younger brother, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So the younger, it wasn't like, the younger brother didn't say, I can't stand my older brother. I just had to get away. It didn't work out for me. No. He said, I've sinned. I'm the problem. The second way you repent is you realize the folly of your own pursuits. This one's huge because th- this is exactly what the tax collector did. Because the tax collector is standing far off, and, and he, here's a guy who's continually taking advantage of people. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, he didn't feel like he was worthy. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's like, my pursuits of what I went after, what I'm going after right now is folly, is foolish. The younger brother says he, says he came to himself. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? Like, what a realization. Like, what a realization that he's like, I want to go back. And I don't, even, I don't just want to, I don't want to be, become the brother again or the son again. I'll just be a servant. Because so often, here's what we want. We want to know we have the blessings of heaven. Know we have the promise of eternal life. But then live however we want. So we'll take him as Savior, but we won't take him as Lord. God, save me from my sin, but I will be Lord of my own life. And repentance looks like, save me from my sin and from the folly of my own way. I want to know you. And the last one, receive grace because you know you can't earn it. The younger brother, he just wanted to get back to his father. He's like, I'll be the least of the least of the least in my father's house, and I'll at least have something to eat. And what happened? I threw a party for him. His heart had been changed, he'd been transformed. I want to close with Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Through 15. Take a look at it. It's on the screen. Look at what the gospel accomplishes for us. And I, I want to use this as a way for you to just ask the Lord what repentance looks like for you this morning. Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared. So the gospel is present. God's grace, it transforms. And here it is right now. Let's see what happens with it. Bring salvation to all people. But not just salvation. Look at what it does. It's training us to renounce ungodliness. So here's what all, so often, when we seek to live for the Lord, what we do is we try to bring our own moral conformity to the table. God's saying, "No, you're missing it. The grace of God has come, And the point of the grace of God is that that's the means by which you renounce ungodliness. by my grace, not by your power training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. So the gospel calls us to morality. But it's so much more than that. It calls us to a standard of living. 13, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to pursue for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works so what's what's the point God wants you to have him He wants you to be a a, a person for his own possession He's calling you to that. And when we run to either side, we're settling for something so different than what God's called us to. Let's pray. Papa, we run to you right now. Papa, would your spirit be at work among us? God, where we're critical, where we're prideful, where we find our identity in who we are rather than who you are, where we run to religion, where we run to irreligion, would you call us back to a gospel of grace free? It's free for us. It costs you everything, it costs your son everything, but it's freely given to us. God, teach us how to live in that. Teach us how to repent this morning. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.